Amen. Well, good morning. I'm excited that you are with us. If you are our guest this morning, I want to say a, a special welcome to you. My name is Will, and I get the privilege to serve as pastor here at Spring Creek, and I'm excited that you have joined us this morning. Um, we have been uh, together for the last several weeks uh, in a series um, that we have been walking through the Bible together to see all of God's heart uh, for the salvation of, of the lost and uh, God's desire and passion for sinners like you and like me. And so we're coming now to a point um, where we are going to come to the conclusion of, of that look at the, the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, together. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, uh, a very um, familiar um, passage of Scripture, perhaps for many of you. Um, and if you don't have a Bible of your very own, there should be one in the chairs under, uh, in, under the chairs in front of you. Be glad for you to, to take that, use that this morning. If you don't have one or know someone who needs one, uh, feel free to, to keep that as our gift to you. Um, and I uh, would love for you also, one more housekeeping, something before we dive right into this. Um, uh, if you are our guest, hopefully on your way in, you got a Connect card. We would love for you to fill that out, leave that in your seat so that we can know how we can better connect with you in ministry. This morning, as we've been talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, we come now to uh, the, the final uh, look and the final piece of the puzzle, which is what I hope will be kind of the linchpin that makes all of the pieces potentially fall in place for you, for you and for me, um, as we see God's heart uh, for sinners uh, in this time and in this place. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times in my life when I feel far from God. And I think that there's a reason for that, and it's, it's a reason that the Bible gives to us, and it's a reason that you maybe see in your own life uh, again and again. Do you have somebody in your life that is hard to please? Like, they're just notoriously impossible to make happy. Try as you may, everything that you do seems to just fall short and you can never make them happy. Spending eight years at Starbucks, I had some customers that came back again and again and again, and regardless of what we did, we found it nearly impossible to make these individuals happy. They had a very specific drink with 15 different add-ons, and if you messed any one of them up in the wrong proportion or anything else, guess what? You heard about it, and they were demanding their free drink. And it was like they intentionally made the drink as complicated as they possibly could just so that they could get the free one on the backside. They never complained about the free one, by the way. It was just perfect, exactly the way that it was supposed to be. But when we have those people in our lives, those customers that would come through Starbucks for us, guess what we did when we saw that car come into the parking lot or we saw that person getting out of their car and coming into the store? Somebody was running into the back room saying, I'm not dealing with them. And you inevitably ended up, whoever it was that was, happened to be that, that barista that was stocking milk or something and their head was down at the wrong moment, they were stuck on the floor all of a sudden by themselves dealing with this customer that nobody else wanted to touch. And we have those people in our lives. When there's someone in our life that we see as difficult to please, we inevitably withdraw from them. That relationship breaks down because it seems like no matter what we do, we just cannot make you happy, and we are constantly failing. And when we feel like failures, we just withdraw. We shut down. 
And unfortunately, for most of us in our lives as believers, our lives as Christians, that's exactly how we feel about God. Maybe you're in that place, maybe you've been in that place where you seem to feel like every single time that I come to the Bible, there's something else. God's got another rule, God's got another command, God's got another something. Or maybe you just feel inside of your heart that God is far from you. That God's not happy with you. And when you picture God in your mind right now, you are picturing God as looking at you with disappointment or disgust. And all of your best efforts in God's sight and in front of him, they're just not good enough for God. But maybe you're here in this room and you don't necessarily see God looking down at you with disappointment or disgust. Maybe in your mind's eye, God's proud of you. God's real proud of you right now because you know what? You weren't as bad this past week as you were the week before. Or you know what? You're not as bad as so-and-so down the street or so-and-so on the other side of the office or those people on the other side of the country, and you are able to, to safely live inside of this place where you are proud of yourself, and so you project that pride onto God. We have a tendency to take how we view ourselves, whether we are disappointed in ourselves or proud of ourselves, and inevitably take that and project it onto God, and that's how we then imagine God sees us. The problem with that is that we inevitably either feel like failures or we are failures in our own pride. And the Bible says that God has a different emotion towards his children. It's a pleasure in his children that overflows and is rejoicing. And that rejoicing, though, is something that is tied to a posture in your life and in mine. And that posture that we see, something that provokes God's heart to rejoice, and therefore, since it's God's heart that is rejoicing, all of heaven rejoice with him, rejoices with him, that posture, that practice that, we are see, that, that, that provokes that response in God is exposed to us in all of Luke 15. But we're going to look specifically at a very popular parable, which is the parable of the prodigal son, which begins in verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, look with me in Luke chapter 15, beginning... In verse 11, there Luke writes, and Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. His father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Would you pray with me this morning? Father heaven, as we come now before your word, I pray, Lord Jesus, that your presence would be in this place, that you would fill each of our hearts with a spirit, your spirit, that opens our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to resonate with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might bring you glory, that we might know your love for us, your life that was given for us, and may we, Heavenly Father, respond with a greater understanding and a deeper dependence upon you every single moment of every single day to receive from you the grace and the mercy and experience the joy of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning as we study this passage of Scripture. Uh, It's not going to be what you would typically see from me in a sermon where there's going to be three little nice neat points and we're going to expose this and everything else because the truth of the matter is we've only read part of Jesus' bigger story. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 15, what you find there is there is a situation that has taken place. That in Jesus' ministry, Jesus regularly hung out with dirty people. And I'm not talking about like they rolled in the dirt. I'm talking about prostitutes and sinners, tax collectors, the worst of the the dregs of society. And in this, he is hanging out with some tax collectors and some sinners, and that draws criticism from the religious people. The people who are filled with their own pride. And so they are condemning Jesus Christ. They're grumbling within themselves, verse 2 says, that this man, Jesus, hangs out with sinners and eats with them. Now, there's two ways that you could take that if you don't read the tone correctly. On the one hand, there's the possibility that what you and I experience is we have been those people that needed Jesus to hang out with us, that that is a really awesome truth. Jesus hangs out with sinners, guys. That's exciting. And I pray that you're excited by that. But these guys aren't excited about that. They're shocked and insulted by it. And so Jesus, in verse 3, told them this singular parable. And all of chapter 15 is one extended parable with three separate scenes. And what's common to each of those scenes is that something that is valuable is lost. Someone goes looking for it. What was lost is found, but here's the key. Then there's a celebration. And that's the pattern in the first parable where there's a shepherd who loses one of a hundred sheep. And he leaves the 99 in the safe space and he goes and he pursues the one that is lost to bring it home and then he throws a party with all of his friends. 
And then there's a woman, she loses one of ten extremely valuable coins. And so what she does is she lights a lamp even in the middle of the day, and she turns that place upside down until she finds that one coin, and then what does she do? She calls all of her girlfriends together and they throw a party. And then he tells this story, which is probably the most famous parable that Jesus has ever told. As we've studied it again and again and again, as there is now we've gone from 100 to 10 to 2. A sheep to a coin to a person. And that person is lost not because of an accident, but because of their own waywardness and sin. And this son essentially comes to his father and says, you know what, Dad, I wish you were dead, so in order for me to, to get everything that I want, so here's what I want you to do, Dad. I want you to give me everything that's going to come to me in my inheritance now. And the father, in his grace and in his love, gives him everything. And he takes that and he turns it into cash and he takes off. And he lives this wanton, rebellious, sinful lifestyle where he wastes everything that his father gave him. All of his inheritance is squandered on sinful living until he comes to the point where he's broken and destitute and desperate, and there's no one to help him. No one wants to touch him. This one who was at one point a, an heir to this, this potential massive piece of property is now destitute, and he is alone and in that loneliness, the Bible says that he comes to himself. He turns from his desperate situation and he remembers, you know what? In my dad's house, there's nobody who lives like this. And if I would just go home, I can't go back as a son, but maybe I can go back as a servant and I can work for God's, or work for my father's affections or at least work for him. And then I can, and I can earn his protection and his provision at the very least. So he heads home. But before he can even get there, his father is looking for him, actively looking for him, and runs to him and embraces him. And doesn't merely embrace him in his dirty condition, but now restores him. He takes a coat, which would have been preserved exclusively for a guest of honor. And he puts that best cloak on his son. And he takes a ring, which is a sign of sonship, and puts it back on his finger. And then he puts shoes on his feet, something that no servant ever had. Shoes were the prerogative of the sons and the family. Servants didn't wear shoes. Before he even gets it out of his mouth, I want to serve you. He is restored by the Father's grace. And the one that is lost is found, and guess what dad does? Dad throws a party. Something's lost, it's found, there's a party. Something's lost, it's found, there's a party. Something lost, there's found, there's a party. Somebody ain't happy. You see, the end of Luke 15, the, the, the story of the older brother's response to the younger brother's return is the point of the parable. As they are contrasted with the heart of God, did you watch Sesame Street growing up? And remember that little segment? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Right? What doesn't belong in the story that Jesus is telling is the older brother's bitterness. 
And the whole point of Luke 15 is to expose to you and to me God's heart for sinners who repent. Because at every single point, we find out that not the party that is thrown in the story is represented, representative of the rejoicing that happens in heaven over what? Over even one sinner who repents. Do you want to know what, rejo- what causes God's heart to rejoice? It's repentance. All of heaven is meant to reflect the heart of God. So if all of heaven is throwing a party because someone has repented of their sins, guess what? It's because God's heart is throwing a party over one who has repented of their sins. This whole passage is meant to communicate to you and to me that God rejoices over repenting sinners. And if we are going to be reflections of God's heart, if we are going to receive that joy that pours out of God, we must be participants in the repentance and the celebration of repentance. But that's so often where we struggle. You see, this is God's heart. And this is what we've been looking at as as Luke chapter 15. I told you, that's the big point. You want to know what the purpose of Luke 15 is? It's to expose God's heart for repentant sinners, that God rejoices over sinners. All of this passage of Scripture is showing us exactly what we've been looking at in a smaller condensed version over the last several weeks as we have seen the entire story of Scripture moves from creation, God's good design for the world in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 into brokenness because of our rebellion and our sin. And every time that we attempt to do in our own strength or creativity what only God can do in his grace, we only perpetuate our problem. We run deeper and deeper away from God and only make our situation worse. But God in his grace did not leave us in our brokenness, but instead he rescued us by sending his son Jesus Christ to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, which is to redeem us from our sins and accomplish everything necessary for our salvation. And when we put our faith and trust in him, the Bible says that God begins to work all things together. We are new creations in Jesus Christ as he is restoring us in the strength of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one day we will get to experience God for all of eternity in the new creation that God is working out. That's the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the storyline of all of Scripture. We saw last week that that's also the storyline of Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? This J-curve that we've been following in Philippians chapter 2, that the one who is equal with God chose not to hold fast to the equality of God. Instead, he took on human flesh, the incarnation. He emptied himself by clothing himself in humanity and came to the earth where he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. God in his righteousness resurrected him by the power of the Holy Spirit, restored him to life, but he didn't stay in that glorified place on on earth. Instead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is waiting for the moment when he will be exalted for all of eternity. And that's the J-curve that we've been looking at, and that's not merely the J-curve of Scripture. It's not merely the story of Jesus Christ. It's the story of you and me as well. And this is what we're talking about today in this response that we have for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The J-curve is the God's story, it's Jesus' story, and it's your story, and it's my story. 
The response of the gospel is exactly what we see in the story of the younger brother, right? The younger brother was at one point a part of a really great family where he was loved and he was cared for, and he had a father who respected him and loved him. But in his sin and in his rebellion, he ran away from the father. That's you and me. In our lives that we have moved away from God's good design for us in our sin and in our rebellion, and God in his grace doesn't leave us in that, but instead by the power of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin, God brings us to the point of brokenness in a spiritual sense because why? We're living in a state of brokenness. But the Holy Spirit works upon our heart to bring us to conviction so that we might turn from our sin and from ourselves and put our faith and trust in Jesus alone. And in putting our faith and trust in Jesus alone, what the Bible shows us is this son runs to the father. There's the, as, as the son, the younger son in this passage says that he came to himself, that's merely a, a, a Jewish cultural kind of way, not of saying he stirred up inside of himself repentance, but instead it shows that he changed he, there was a change of his mind and a change of his heart and a change of his understanding that led to a change of behavior. That's what repentance is, brothers and sisters. It's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior in your life and mine. It's turning away from his situation and away from himself to fix his situation and go home to someone who can, which is his father. And when we turn from our sins and we turn from ourselves and we trust completely in Jesus alone, we receive at that moment, the Bible says, redemption, we're redeemed from our sins and we're restored. Just like this younger son was restored. And God then works on our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit as he sets us apart for himself. And the Holy Spirit works in us to grow us up in our salvation and our understanding and dependence upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he sends us now as his emissaries back into the brokenness of our world that we might speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others that they might experience the same redemption and rescue until the day that we are completely and fully transformed. Do you see that? You following with that? That's the story of the younger brother. And that's the story that maybe you've heard at an evangelism event or a revival or something like that where this is the story that we need. And there are some of you in this room right now who cannot say that there is a point in your life where you have ever felt the joy of God in your life. You've never felt like God looked at you in any other way than in disappointed or angry. Because the truth of the matter is, you're living in that brokenness, and you, like this younger brother, need to receive from God what you can't give or accomplish in your own strength and your own power. You need to turn from yourself, maybe for the very first time, and trust completely in Jesus Christ alone. To acknowledge, just as this younger brother acknowledges, you know what, I can't do this on my own. There's something that's better out there. There's a longing inside of our hearts for God and for only what he can give us. And so just like this younger brother, we need to come back to the Father in repentance, acknowledging I am sinful, I have sinned against you and heaven, I've sinned against others, and I need to be forgiven and freed. I'm not worthy to be called your son. 
And that's true, brothers and sisters. There's no worthiness inside of any single one of us. And so my challenge to you today is if there's a place, if you can't say that there's ever a point in your life where you have turned from your sin and from yourself and you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you've experienced a change in your life, right here, right now, today is the day that I would urge you to call out to God to change your life, to forgive you of your sins, to transform you through your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. There's some of you today that have never experienced the joy of salvation because you're not safe. And I would tell you that God loves you and God is ready to throw a party over you and God is calling you right here, right now through this scripture and through my words into a life of salvation right here, right now. But for many of you in this room, this is something that you have experienced in the past. And it's something that you can remember. There's been an experience in your life where you have turned from your sin and you have trusted in Jesus Christ. You have stepped forward in obedience and you've been saved. That's the moment, the point in our lives that the Bible, that we talk about as theologians when we talk about this issue, this concept of conversion, right? Tell you what, we're going to work through this together. I'm not going to put that there. I'm cheating. I'm cheating, guys. thought that was already gone. Right? So we've got this moment in our lives, and hopefully it's up on the screen. There it is. Look at there. So here's what we've got in our lives. We've been at that place where we can remember that there was a point in our lives, in, in the past in our time, where there was a place where by His grace and by His mercy, God awakened us to the reality that there is a distance and a separation between God and His holiness and us and our sins. And there was a moment when we chose in that moment to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith by putting our full and total trust in Jesus Christ to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so we believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's going to act funny. We believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone to bridge the gap that's necessary to get us all the way from our sin and all the way to God. And we trusted in Jesus Christ to, to do all of that. And we can remember the joy that came in that moment to know that God, by His grace, took us all the way from the depths of our sin to the place of salvation and to Him in His holiness as He's restoring us. But here's the deal with Christianity, brothers and sisters in Christ. That experience doesn't stop at the point of our conversion. Instead, a sign of true maturing Christianity is the reality that the Bible says each and every moment of our life, we are growing in two separate truths. One, we are growing more and more aware of God's holiness. Not to say that God is somehow more holy each and every moment of each and every day, but we're growing more and more sensitive to His holiness. As we spend time in His Word, as we fellowship with Him in prayer, as we fellowship with other believers in Jesus Christ, we are coming to a deeper understanding of the nature of God. And that deeper understanding of the nature of God gets bigger and bigger. If your picture of God is not bigger today than when you were saved, you're not growing in Christianity. And where there is no growth, there is only death. Growing things change. Living things grow. 
But also, not only are we growing more and more aware of our holiness, we're growing more and more aware of our sinfulness. So in reality, the experience of Christianity is that as we grow and as we mature in our faith in Jesus Christ, the gap between us and God only seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the problem is that many of us as believers are in the position where the understanding of God's holiness is greater, but our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ is compartmentalized to back then. I needed Jesus at first. And maybe you've lived or you've grown up in a church tradition that trains you, has trained you, taught you that, yeah, Jesus is part of this, but there are other things as well. And so what you end up with is this position where there is this gap that Jesus isn't enough to get across. And so what we try to do is we have this question of what do I do with the space between me and God that Jesus isn't enough for? And we can say, let's be real honest, we can say real clearly in my mind, I know that Jesus is enough, I believe that Jesus is enough, I'm a Christian, so of course I know that. That's all true. But functionally, we don't live this out in our lives. Because here's the truth, brothers and sisters, the problem with this passage of Scripture for so many Christians is that we don't resonate with either brother. Maybe we get around to the, the sinful brother at a point. That was me in the past. I get that. I'm, I, I couldn't be the Pharisee, the older brother. But here's the truth of the matter, brothers and sisters. We are both brothers at many different points in our lives. This is the parable of the prodigal son. When you hear that word prodigal, what comes to your mind? As I've asked some folks that question this week, I've, I've gotten kind of a common theme. It's someone who's wayward, someone who's rebellious, someone who's lost. And because of this parable, that's kind of what it's come to mean in our culture. But if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, that's not what prodigal means. Prodigal means wasteful. Someone who has wasted what was given to them. That is what it means that he is the prodigal son. He takes the inheritance that was given to his father and he wastes it. And that's what you and I do every single day, brothers and sisters. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then the story of the J-curve is that you have been given an eternal inheritance and promise. That you have been rescued from your sin. You have been redeemed and restored. You have been adopted into the family of God. Therefore, as we've said in the past, you are now a son or a daughter of the God of creation. And you have all of the inheritance that Jesus is, that Jesus has. All that is Jesus is, is yours. And when you choose to sin, you've squandered the inheritance that God has given you on something less than the glory of God. You've taken the diamonds of heaven and you've thrown them before the swine of your sin. His story is my story. His story is your story, not just somewhere back then in the past, but right here and right now, tomorrow, this week, when I choose to squander the freedom that I have in Jesus Christ by choosing a different path other than faithful love and adoration of God, I am squandering the good inheritance that God has given to me. 
And just like this prodigal son, what we oftentimes depend on when we come to the Father is we attempt to fill this gap right here by bringing somehow God's holiness down to ourselves. And we do that by attempting, as the Son attempted to do, in some way to perform for God's love. Every believer in Jesus Christ struggles with this. Every person in existence throughout human history has dwelt in this burden that we have that somehow I have to work my way to God. That it's Jesus plus my church attendance. Jesus plus anything. My faithfulness, my obedience, my whatever else. And just like this son who can't believe that his father would love him in his infinite grace and mercy, we have a difficult time understanding that the God who is perfectly holy would ever love us unless we earn that love somehow. And so the ways that we most often perform in our lives to earn God's grace come out in things that we can... Here's some diagnostic things for you. If you're trusting in the things I do for God to in any way please God, you're struggling with this right here, performance. The things that I do for God, like go to church and give and serve and evangelize and all of these records, those are our great things, but if they are coming from your heart, from a posture to somehow bridge the gap between Jesus and God for you, then you're not fully depending on Jesus Christ. You're pretending, you are depending on your performance. But maybe you're not necessarily depending on the things that you do for God. Maybe you're depending on the things you don't do. I'm not the type of person who does this. I don't go to that part of town. I don't hang out with these types of people. I am defending and I am perpetuating my spiritual purity. And so, of course, God loves me because I don't do the bad things that all those bad people do. But maybe you're not depending just on that or on the things you do, the things you don't do. Maybe something that goes in your mind is you are trapped by the things you can't do. I'll give you a specific example. You ever had somebody tell you, you just need to forgive yourself? You're struggling with something in your past, uh, uh, something that you've done. Maybe you have sinned this particular week against your spouse, against your children, against your coworker, against God himself, and you are in that place where you are struggling to, quote-unquote, forgive yourself. You are attempting to do your, for yourself what only God can do. Your problem isn't that you need to forgive yourself. The problem is that you need to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are forgiven, whether you think you are or not. But maybe it's not the things that you can't do. Maybe it's the things that you won't do because you're afraid. I could never do that. There are gifted people who do that. That's not, I could never. Because of the fear inside of me, a fear is rooted in a failure to trust in Jesus to equip you for the things that he's called you for. And so in some way, your relationship to God is tied to your performance. It's not just the younger brother who's performing. The older brother is performing as well, right? He comes to the father and he goes, look, he left and he squandered everything, but I stayed. Dad, I've done everything right. I've done everything that was expected of me culturally, everything else, and I have never even asked 
to be able to throw a party. And yet, he goes away. And he comes back and he gets the fattened calf. He's depending upon his performance, his behavior to please his father. But not only is the older brother performing, the older brother is doing the other thing. So if we're not trying to bring God's holiness down through our performance, we are trying to make light of our sin and bring ourselves up to God. And the way that you and I do this most often is in pretending. We're trying to bridge the gap between our sin and the cross with pretending. What do you mean by that, Pastor? What are the ways that we pretend? Well, number one is when someone brings to mind or to our attention sin in our life, what's your response? Do you get angry? Do you bluster? Do you scream? Do you yell? Do you, are you quick to defend yourself? Uh-uh, I'm not that bad. I know, uh-uh, I didn't, that, that's not true of me. Or you don't understand. Because if you just understood me and understood the the situation, then you would understand why I did. My sin's not that bad. If we're not defending ourselves, maybe we're faking it. We're showing up to church and we're pretending like we got it all together. Oh yeah, I'm I'm good with God. I'm, I'm growing. Everything's fine. There's nothing wrong in my life. Everything's okay. And we're putting out a false front that says, I got this. I'm good. Or if we're not faking it, we're hiding. And there's a difference between faking. Faking is an act of pride. Hiding is an act of shame. I'm I'm just running away from the problem and the people who could potentially expose it. If they never see it, it's not there. Other ways that we do it is we exaggerate. We take the little victories in our lives and we make them mountains. And we make much of ourselves at any opportunity that we could possibly make it. We are, ex- we are just rocking and rolling. You wouldn't believe what I was able to do this week. You wouldn't believe what happened in this, this week. And maybe 90% of it is false, but there's that little 10%, and so you think that you're okay. We're not exaggerating. We're doing exactly what Adam and Eve did all the way back in the garden. We're blaming somebody else. Right? God comes and he confronts Adam with his sin. What's Adam's first response? The woman that you gave to me. It's not enough that he blames his wife, that he blames Eve. It's God's fault. If you hadn't put her here, she wouldn't have been a temptation. And when he comes to Eve, what does she do? It's the serpent's fault. And you and I are still in that place where whenever there's something wrong in our lives, it's always somebody else's fault. You got somebody like that in your life? It's never my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. But that's us as well. But probably the most significant way that you and I pretend is we play the comparison game. I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as I used to be. We compare ourselves not to God's infinite holiness. Instead, we compare ourselves to a past version of ourselves or to other people in the world. And what we're doing in that moment is we're refusing to acknowledge the fact that God is infinitely holier than we ever possibly understood at the very beginning of our salvation and also that we are infinitely more sinful than we thought. 
Growing Christian maturity is a wrestling with the truths of Scripture that God is holy and I am sinful and I need God to fix that problem. And so then the question becomes, what should we do? What is the response? How do we overcome this? What does genuine, growing Christianity look like? It looks like as our understanding of God's holiness grows and our understanding of our sin grows, instead of keeping Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ at the same level, instead I grow in my understanding of the reality that Jesus is Always, brothers and sisters, Jesus is always enough. No matter how big the gap may get between me and God, Jesus is always big enough to come all the way to me, no matter where I am, and get me all the way to God. I don't have to be afraid of becoming ever increasingly more and more sensitive to the sin in my life. I don't have to be afraid of growing in my understanding of God's holiness. Because no matter how big the gap may get, Jesus is always enough. Because you see, the big picture of this passage of Scripture, as it exposes God's heart for repentant sinners, is to expose to you and to me the fact that Jesus Christ is the foil to the Pharisees. They're the older brother standing back who won't join in the celebrations because they are playing the comparison game. I'm better than those people, those dirty, nasty sinners. I would never come into their presence lest their sin somehow jump on to me. Jesus instead, unlike the Pharisees and unlike the big brother who refused to participate in the celebration is the better big brother who didn't just watch us walk away, who didn't leave us in the pigsty, but instead he chose to pursue us in the pigsty. As he descended from the Father's throne, as he clothed himself in humanity, as he lived a perfect and spotless and righteous life for you and for me, and he humbled himself to the point of death, he came directly to where we are in the pigsty, and he not only bought us out of the hands of the slave of the master that we had sold ourselves into, which is sin, he rescued us from that pigsty, and he took us all the way home. And when he got home, we're not just kind of tag, at the tatches, some kind of weird cancerous growth on the family of God. Instead, he gives us, shares with us everything that is his. He's not selfish. He did everything that was necessary that you and I might be brought all the way to God. He's the better big brother. In this passage of Scripture, the one who is reflecting the heart of God is the Son of God sitting in the midst of sinners. And what brings God joy and what causes all of heaven to rejoice is not the ones who are attempting to earn his favor, not the ones who are pretending that they're all that bad, but instead the ones who are willing to humble themselves by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and position themselves in a posture of repentance to receive from God what we can never achieve in our performance or fake, which is love and grace and mercy. 
If we want to live the joy of salvation, we must be people who consistently position ourselves before the God of salvation in repentance. Because God rejoices over repentant sinners. So if we want to participate in the joy of heaven, we must be people who are in the posture of repentance every moment of every day. Turning from myself and from my sin and only to Jesus. And there are a lot of Christians, I believe, maybe some of you in this room, where you've got the grasp of, I need to turn away from my sin, but you're not yet at the place where you've turned away from yourself. You're still trusting in you to do what only Jesus can do. What only God through his spirit and his grace can do. And today's the day that you need to posture yourself before the Lord, repenting of your performance, repenting of your pretending, and trusting in Jesus alone. And it's from that posture that you will see a God who is not disappointed in you, is not falsely proud of you, but a God who's rejoicing over you because of what he's doing in you. As you take up that position where you rest in what Jesus has done and you rely on Jesus to work in you to now accomplish everything. It doesn't free us from our responsibility to obey. Faith is hearing this message, believing this message, and responding in obedience in our lives. But we're obeying not to get God happy with us, but in a position of confidence that because of what Jesus has done for me, I am, he is now pleased with me. And I get to participate in his pleasure and in his work in my life by his power. Not by mine. Not by my creativity. But solely in his grace. How do you need to repent today? How do you need to come before God in repentance and faith right here, right now? Because if we want to experience the joy of salvation, when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember, Mark, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's not a one and done, brothers and sisters. That is an ever-present posture before God to receive from God what we can never stir up, create within ourselves, but can only be put there by God and by his grace. How do you need to turn from your sin and yourself and trust in Jesus, not just today, but tomorrow or this afternoon and tomorrow and next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday? Because here's the difference between a brand new believer and maybe where you are today. For the brand new believer, that joy of salvation, of trusting in Jesus is brand spanking new. But for many of you, it's grown old and cold. And the life that comes into it comes by the power of God for the son and daughter of God who positions himself and herself in the posture of repentance. So I'm inviting you. Live a life of repentance 
from this day forward and experience an ever-growing joy in Jesus. Would you go before the Lord, bow your heads and close your eyes and seek Him and seek His face. Ask His wisdom and His grace over you. How do you need to repent today? In what ways are you pretending that you're not that bad? In what days are you attempting to perform for God? How do you need to turn from all of that and trust in Jesus? And I'll close this in prayer in a moment.